the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Lord, we do ask that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We humbly ask that your word would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteous and godly living for the sake of your glory and our good. Amen. You may take a seat. Someone once told my wife and I, that we should begin with the end in mind with our kids. Makes sense. So we took this to heart, and one of our end goals with our daughter is to train her and all of our daughters in the way of godliness. You know, we've tried a lot of different iterations, especially with our oldest daughter. She's kind of a tough one. And currently, we have a poster board with the lists of the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, and patience. And when Hallie exhibits a fruit of the Spirit, she puts a little sticker on one of these poster boards. And as she puts more stickers, she gets more treats and like M&Ms and ice creams. Now before you comment on my parenting after the service, before I get an anonymous parenting book in my uh, mail, I'm aware of the issues with this reward system. But it's something that we're trying in this system, in this season, keyword trying. You know, I feel free to try different methods, and you should too, because the Bible doesn't give its readers one way to promote growth and godliness. It doesn't give one way to do it. However, it does give some general principles, and we can observe some of these principles in our New Testament reading this morning from 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16 helps its readers understand that godliness is linked to behaviors, beliefs, and blood. Brings me great joy to have a main point be blood, to really keep a three-point B alliteration this morning. 
So again, godliness is linked to behaviors, beliefs, and blood. Turn with me in your red Bibles to page 992. If you haven't done that, we're going to work our way through this passage in 1 Timothy 992. You know, it's only a few short verses, but right from the get-go, we do see that godliness is linked to behavior. And it's primarily, primarily behavior within the household of God. It's primarily behavior within the household of God. Let's look starting at verse 14. It reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. At the time of this writing, Paul's on a missionary journey abroad, and he hopes to visit this church in Ephesus because he's heard through the grapevine that some false teachers have infiltrated this community. And it's causing this the community to behave poorly. And so in case he's delayed, he sends this letter to Timothy, who oversees the community at this time. This letter is simply trying to reaffirm truth and give Timothy some practical tips on these matters. A key theme in this book is that Paul wants the church to know that their behaviors do indeed matter. Our behaviors do indeed matter in the eyes of God. There is a way that they ought to live. There are godly behaviors, and there are ungodly behaviors. Now, this leads to a question. What are some of these behaviors? So very quickly, in 1 Timothy, Paul advocates against things like quarreling, against greed, malice. He gives rules on how one should conduct themselves in worship. He advises constant prayer and describes how they should seek to honor each other. He furthermore encourages the church to devote itself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. What I find interesting, and where I want to spend most of our time, is where Paul believes right behavior should take place. Paul focuses on behaviors that are internal-facing rather than external-facing. He speaks more how these Christians should treat one another within the Christian community more than he does on how they should treat people outside of the Christian community. You know, this is a little different because when we think about godly behavior, we tend to do this in reverse order. We're usually on our best behavior with outsiders and on our worst behavior with insiders. By this I mean we're kind to new friends, but we're harsh to family members. We'll spend a lot of time trying to impress our superiors, but we'll spend very little time thinking about how we love those within our church. It's interesting then that Paul links behavior to the term household. In Paul's day, the idea of a household was a bit more expansive than our current understanding of households. Households could uh, involve four or five different generations that all lived under one roof, could include servants at that time, it could even include business partners. Back then, just like it does now, the idea of a household comes with connotations of intimacy and commitment. You know, the household is usually the place of brutal self-honesty. It's usually the place we can't hide. Many of us know exactly where we need to grow when we think about the way that we treat our family members. Paul recognizes that the battle for godliness takes place around the people we're most comfortable and familiar with. But he doesn't just say household. 
He qualifies it by saying, this is actually behavior in the household of God. And he says the household of God is the church of the living God. You know, by church, that can be a little confusing to us because when we think of church, we can think of a big building like this with beautiful windows, lights, a cross. But that's not what Paul's thinking about at this time. The church in Ephesus was a startup. It was new and fresh. It was meeting in homes. They probably didn't even have a nice church building. By church, Paul is talking about the people of God. So Paul is adamant that these people need to work on the way that they are treating the members in their own community. Wow, that's a great application for us this morning. How can you better love this Holy Trinity community? Are you willing to get into it, challenging, exhorting, encouraging the people in your community groups here at Holy Trinity? Are you willing to stay after church to connect with people, maybe to welcome a new person into your social circles? Do you need to increase your level of involvement by serving each week? Family participation is a priority here at Holy Trinity. That's why we offer a class called Six Steps to Loving Your Church. It's big for us to love our church. Paul commands it, and so we follow it. And then there's another reason that we do this. The way we treat others not only impacts us, it obviously impacts this community. You know, if we grow in godliness and love each other better, it'll actually grow this community. There's another verse in the Bible, John 13, 25, and it reads, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, the way that this Christian community loves each other reveals God to the world. The way that we love each other reveals God to the world. Now, how is this possible? So notice again that Paul says that uh, the household of God is the church of the living God. So our living and active God dwells amongst his church, and his church is his people, those that love and trust him. Therefore, God is most clearly manifested within the community of believers. It's within the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. And so here's the logic. As we live godly lives with one another, It'll attract people to our community. And as people come into our community, they will encounter the one true God. In the book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, How Christianity Can Reach the West, again, George Hunter explores the methods of Celtic Christianity and how it spread through the British Islands. You know, Celtic Christianity was one of the most successful evangelistic branches of the church in history. And one of the ways that they did this was through establishing communities. They created small communities called monasteries where these Christians lived and worked together. They participated in worship, prayer, study, and service. These communities served as a model for the pagans, uh, as a witness to the love, compassion, and virtues of the Christian faith. Now here's what's super fascinating that he goes into. After a while, These pagan outsiders wanted to be involved in these Christian communities more than their own. And they joined these communities first without even accepting the beliefs of these Christian communities. They were like, wow, you love me, you care for me, my other pagan friends are trying to kill me, I'd rather be in your community. (laughs) Over time, though, as they lived and worked and spent more time with these Christians, 
the pagans began to have their beliefs converted as well. Essentially, they were converted to community first, and they were loved into the belief in God. You know, there's a popular phrase out there that states, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. You know, I get that idea. It's fine, but I want to critique it a little bit. Using that recent Celtic analogy, yes, these pagans were loved into the belief through community, but ultimately their beliefs were converted as well. Words were eventually necessary to inform those beliefs. And this ushers us into our next point for this morning. Our text reminds us that godliness is linked to our beliefs. Godliness is linked to our beliefs. Look with me at our text again. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And I'm going to focus on this, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul uses two words to describe this church of the living God. He says the church is a pillar of truth, and it's a buttress of truth. You know, pillars bear weighty loads. Pillars uphold buildings. Therefore, Paul is saying that the church upholds the weighty truth. And a buttress, as you may know, is built against a wall. It supports and reinforces a wall, prevents a wall from crumbling due uh, to the added pressures of the world and gravity, prevents the truth from collapsing. Therefore, Paul is saying that the church supports and reinforces the truth just like a buttress. It prevents the truth from collapsing. So I've been talking to you about truth, and you may have caught that I'm using a specific article intentionally. It's the word the. The church doesn't uphold, support, or reinforce a truth. It upholds, supports, and reinforces the truth. In our postmodern world, where truth is relative, we can't be squeamish about this fact. The Christian faith, with its claims about Jesus, the good life, the afterlife, does put up bounds around the truth. It says this is true, and this is not true. It's a weighty task. It's a task that means we can't get it wrong. So if we're to do this well, it must be absolutely clear on the content of this truth as well as the location of this truth, the content and the location. So let's first address the location of this truth. I'm going to keep going back to the text over and over again because that's what we want to do at Holy Trinity. We want to be text-based. Notice that First Timothy reads, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. I'm writing these things so that you may know. Paul is rooting his message of authority in his written words. His written words enables this church to know how to act. And this is the same for us today. We've got to go to the written word of people like Paul who show us and teach us what we need to believe and how we are to behave as the people of God. God has chosen to reveal his truth through inspired authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, Peter, as well as all the authors of the Old Testament. You know, these vetted authors reveal the inspired words of God to show the way of life and to reveal the message of God. Their words are scripture. Later in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is our source of truth. The words of Scripture stand over every other truth crane you might hear in your life. God's Word is the arbiter of truth, not us. Therefore, I love this image, it's our job to understand Scripture rather than overstand it. We sit under Scripture rather than standing over it. Therefore, Scripture corrects our thinking. It guides us into godly living. It equips us for every good work. You know, there's two ways the church upholds, supports, and reinforces the truth of Scripture. And both of these are actually from 1 Timothy. Let me address this first one because we've already talked about it a little bit. We've got to apply Scripture to our lives. We need to have our lives conform to the behaviors that are talked about in Scripture. You know, uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So we've got to imitate these Scriptures. You know, we can tell people that a chair can hold them up, or we can just sit in the chair. We've got to apply these things. That's going to convey truth to the world. And the second way that the church upholds support and reinforces the truth is by identifying and confronting false teachings and heresies. So the church rejects claims that lead to a disordered understanding of Christianity and its doctrinal truth. Now, why does this matter? Okay, you got to remember that in the context of this book, false teachers have come into the Ephesian community, and they're messing up how they're living. And Paul says that these false teachers, and these are all going to be direct quotes, they teach a different doctrine. They swerve from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. They wander into vain discussion. They lack understanding. They blaspheme, and they persist in sin. You know, false teachers still exist today. There's nothing new under the sun, just a different packaging. The church nowadays must stand against teaching like New Age spirituality, which promotes self-discovery, meditation, and spiritual energy. We've got to stand against universalism, which claims everyone will be saved and enter heaven regardless of their belief or actions during their lifetime. The church must stand against the prosperity gospel, which promotes the idea that the Christian life should be marked by health and wealth and success rather than suffering and sacrifice. The church must stand against teachings that are based on legalism or elevate selfish freedom, that promote nationalistic power or a general concept of love above Jesus Christ. So why is Paul so adamant about this? Why am I going on and on about this this morning? The reason for this, as I said in the beginning, is that our beliefs inform our behavior. Think of a GPS. If you put in the wrong destination, it's going to take you to the wrong place via the wrong route. So too with the Christian faith. If you have the wrong beliefs, it'll cause you to live incorrectly and will end up in the wrong destination. We've got to begin with the end in mind, and our end has to be crystal clear. As the theologian Martin Luther once said, as doctrine is, so also is life. If doctrine is filled with lying, life is hypocritical. You know, we need to reframe, as I've said, our squeamishness about standing firm in and for the truth because it's actually the loving thing to do. If you knew you were going to drive off a cliff because your GPS was off, wouldn't you want to be told? In some, godly behavior is linked to our beliefs. And our beliefs come from Scripture. And it's the church's job to apply truth in our lives while also confronting and rejecting false teachings 
that I actually think make the good news bad news. False teaching makes the good news actually bad news. So earlier I said the church must be absolutely clear on the content of the truth as well as the location. So we've just discussed the location, scripture. Now let me discuss the content of that truth. What is our most essential truth? Now I want to reframe my own question because it's not what, it's who. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, what is the church's truth? Who is the church's truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truth, his life, and his death, and his resurrection that informs our behavior and our beliefs. Now, this turns to our last point this morning. Our text reminds us that godliness is linked to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Godliness is linked to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the remaining part of our text at verse 13. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. If you're looking at these uh, texts in our red Bibles that we provide, you'll notice that uh, this latter grouping of texts is formatted differently. This is because this grouping of verses is a hymn about Jesus that would have been familiar to the reader at the time. For Paul, you can't think about behavior, the church, truth, godliness, without talking about Jesus Christ. You want to know how to live a godly life? Look to the life and ministry of Jesus. As summarized in this hymn, God himself in the form of Jesus manifested himself to the world as he took on flesh in the incarnation. God became man and lived a perfect life, not just to show us how to live, but to also take away the consequences of sin. Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross, and he died the death that we deserved. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. God the Father raised up Jesus by his resurrecting power. This does two things. It not only proves that God has power over death, it also proves that everything Jesus said and did in his life was true. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was not only seen by his disciples, he was also seen in the spiritual realms. Jesus' victory was declared over the whole cosmos, visible and invisible, angels and demons alike. Jesus is revealed as the King of kings and Lord of lords to all people, and this truth this is the truth that is to be proclaimed to all the nations. All people can now come within the reach of God's saving embrace. And that indeed happened. People from all tongues, tribes, and nations have come to know Jesus. And as this hymn ends right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He was taken up in glory after his resurrection and will come back again to judge the living and the dead. Now returning to the church, it's the church's role to confess this truth, this Jesus Christ, this man. There's no room for maneuvering regarding the basic facts of faith in Jesus Christ. So again, the church builds its beliefs and its behaviors around the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. Now, after all that, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with godliness? I think Tim Keller says it well, he says, God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation already given. 
Let's say that one more time. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation already given. Our godliness is a product of the God's work. The mystery of godliness is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We behave and believe differently because of the life and death of Jesus. His blood, his sacrifice revealed the way of godliness that we ought to model. I started this morning by saying that we got to begin with the end in mind, uh, especially I think of that with my kids. <clears throat> and I said that one of our goals is godliness. And what we've seen here is that the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. Therefore, the end goal is and will always be Jesus Christ. If that's not your end goal this morning, I invite you to consider this good news again. If you're new and you have questions, trying to figure out your faith, that's totally fine. We've got a class called Christianity Explored that's perfect for you. Come talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to get you connected to that to answer some questions. Now, others of you here this morning need to refocus on Jesus. You might need to repent if you've taken a good thing like a child or a job promotion or a certain quality of life and you've turned that good thing into an ultimate thing or you've made that an idol where your end goal is no longer Jesus Christ, it's something else. And others of you, you need to hear that you're doing a good job this morning. God sees how much you love him. God sees how much you wanna follow him. He's proud of what you're doing. So some of you just need to receive that word of, you're doing enough. We need to close. Whether you are a seasoned Christian or a new one, whether you're currently joyful or grieving, whether you're discouraged or hopeful, no matter what you're thinking or feeling this morning, our text invites us to behold the truth of Jesus Christ again. This truth, this Jesus, is revealed in the inspired scriptures, and this is why here at Holy Trinity, we're taking 25 minutes to herald that story this morning. It'd be cruel to you and to the world for us to do anything else. The story of Jesus changes everything, it's the source of godliness. His blood informs our beliefs and therefore our behaviors. If you were to take one application away this morning other than Jesus, maybe it's this. Love this family of God here at Holy Trinity. Because when you do this, it can change the world. Amen.